<coughs> a few days ago we saw some remarkable pictures in the newspaper from Heathrow Airport. Following a strike by the staff of British Airways, hundreds of flights were cancelled and thousands of passengers were left stranded. Not only in the airport terminals, but also overflowing outside, sleeping on floors and seats, and even after some days in tents erected to house them. Not surprisingly, there were many complaints from the people who were thus inconvenienced and frustrated. Not only were they tired and angry about their treatment, but maybe even more fundamentally about the lack of information they were getting about what was happening. How long would they have to wait? Would their flights ever take off? Would they be provided with sleep and food, a place to sleep and food and drink? Did anyone care about what was happening to them? Whatever the rights and wrongs of the case, and I have no desire to arbitrate, it's undeniable that the passengers had justifiable cause for complaint. 27 centuries ago, there was a similar attitude about a far more serious problem among the population of a whole nation in the Middle East. From inauspicious beginnings, its founding father being a wandering nomad, its pedigree including a period as slaves in Egypt, the nation of Israel had blossomed into a great empire under its greatest kings, David and Solomon. But now, 300 years later, things were very different. The nation was irreparably divided into two. Its empire was long gone following the disastrous civil war. And even worse, on the borders in the east, a mighty empire was emerging. Assyria, a brutal superpower, was gobbling up all the peoples in its path as it moves inexorably towards the west. And for all the nations that lay in the path of this empire, all of them felt particularly threatened. But for the people of Israel, it was an even greater problem. You see, unlike all the other nations on earth who had their own gods, the people of Israel believed that their God was the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, and that this God had chosen them as his own particular people to represent him and to fulfill and carry out his plan for the whole universe, his plan of history. But now, faced with internal chaos, international threats, what had happened to the divine timetable? Had God's plan failed? Had he given up on them? These were the complaints that were being voiced against God, mutterings in the nation of Israel. Did the complaints fall on deaf ears? Was there any response from the complaints department in the courts of heaven? Yes, there was. The Lord responded through one of his spokesmen, who were known as prophets, a man named Isaiah. And his response demonstrated that in fact there was no cause for complaint. So I want to read this morning what he said in the book of the Bible that bears his name. We'll help to have a Bible in front of you. There are Bibles in the pews if you ask someone to pass one or pick one up. And we're going to read Isaiah chapter 40. It's a wonderful chapter. We're just going to read the final section from verse 27. If you have a church Bible, it's page 725. Page 725, Isaiah chapter 40. And verse 27. 
This is the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is God's Word. If you claim not to believe in God, then it's hardly reasonable to complain to him or against him when things happen that you don't like or don't understand. However, it's very noticeable how often people who claim not to believe in God at all voice their complaints against him when circumstances come along that they don't like. Or events occur in the news, horrific tragedies. And people say, why did God allow this to happen? I believe there's a reason for this. That human beings, all of us, made in the image of God, know that he exists, and therefore, like the stranded passengers in Heathrow Airport, know that there is someone in authority who can explain what is happening and resolve the situation. For those of us, and I guess most of us here this morning, though not all, would be in the category of those who do claim to believe in God, and also claim to know God, these questions are all the more difficult. A belief in the God of the Bible is not, as some people claim, easy believism. If you take the God of the Bible seriously, it's hard believism, difficult believism, as you wrestle with the issues in your own life and in the news. And that was the case of the people of Israel in Isaiah's day. They were not tempted to atheism by their circumstances. They didn't say to themselves, gosh, all these things have happened, maybe God doesn't exist at all. No, they didn't say, all this has happened, all that has happened cast into doubt whether God exists. No, their problem was that they said, all that has happened cast into doubt whether God cares. And this was not just a one-off crisis of belief triggered by a single calamity. It was a persistent nagging problem that had gone on for many decades. Uh, that's indicated in the text here by the continuous tenses that are used in the opening verse. Literally, why do you keep on saying, O Jacob, that's the old name for Israel, the, one of the founders, and keep on complaining, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. My way refers to the particular circumstances the people were passing through. God seems to be unaware of what's happening. My cause is a legal term referring to someone seeking justice in court. It's a person who says, every time my case comes up, it keeps getting dismissed. There's no one 
in the law courts who will deal with it. It appears to the people of Israel that God has chosen to ignore what is happening to them, will not defend them against the injustices that they are facing. Now, not knowing there is anyone who sees or cares is bad enough. Knowing there is someone who can see and could care is far worse, is it not? And not just can see and can care, but can actually do something. For the person concerned is none other than the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. And not just someone or anyone, but someone they're in relationship with. My God. And this was not just an issue for the people in Israel 700 years before the birth of Christ. It is surely an issue for us today, 2,000 years on. Let me be honest. All right. You may not say this, but when things happen in your life, maybe things that are happening to you today, Issues that you're wrestling with in your personal life. Do you never stop and ask seriously, does God really care what's going on in my life? Does he really pay any attention to me? Does he see the issues I'm going to be wrestling with tomorrow morning or even today when I go back home? On a wider scale, when you switch on the television and watch the kind of things that are happening, do you not sometimes stop and say, where is God in all this? Is there a divine timetable? What's really happening? And whether these complaints are voiced or suppressed, which is probably the worst thing of all, just to bury them somewhere, we need to know, is there any answer to our complaint? And this passage tells us, yes, there is. It's the same one that God gave to the people of Israel all those years ago because God isn't changing, his character is the same. And I want you to simply look at the passage with me this morning and look at the answer to our complaints. And the answer is in two parts. The first, which must always come first, relates to who God is, what we call theology, our understanding, the study of God. The first is, remember who God is says the prophet, verses 28 and 29. And the second, which always comes second, because it can only be genuine when it's based on who God is, relates to experience. First theology, then experience based on theology. You're getting the wrong way around, you're in trouble. And the second is, receive what God offers, verses 30 to 31. So look with me at these verses in a little more detail. First of all, remember who God is, verses 28 and 29. Many years ago, I attended a seminar for Christian leaders on counselling and care. Uh, the speaker was a lady who was a psychiatrist with a vast amount of experience, particularly working with Christians, very highly regarded in her field, probably the outstanding, one of the outstanding uh, people in her profession, certainly in the Christian world and outside the Christian world as well. With these kind of things, the interesting bit is always a question time afterwards, because you can ask questions that maybe don't come out so easily. One of the participants asked, what do you think is the main problem with Christians today? This is 30 years ago, right? What do you think is the main problem that Christians have today? That's what she said. She, said, she thought very carefully. She wanted these people who didn't come out with facile lines. I can still picture her holding her hand on her chin, and she said, 
I believe the main problem with Christians today is that they have an inadequate view of who God is. An inadequate view of who God is. And that stayed with me, I have to say, has been reinforced over the years. And I must say that 30 years on, it's probably an even greater problem today for Christians because most of us have an even more inadequate view of who God is. And our study of who God is, what theologians call theology, it's foundational to everything else. Because unless you're sure about who God is, then you make a God of your own making. Or you diminish him. Or shrink him to size. Or you get a warped view of who he is. So, how can we know what God is like and who he is? Well, only, obviously, as he chooses to reveal who he is to us. And the Bible, this book, is simply a record of God's self-revelation, telling people what he's like as people encountered him. It's a book of stories, largely. It's not a theology textbook. This is what's called biblical theology. And as people encountered God, they discovered the kind of God that he was and is. And it's a record of God's self-revelation to all people's God has revealed himself to all people on earth through creation, but he's revealed himself particularly to specific people through encounter and experience and through his word. And the people of Israel were the most privileged nation on earth because God had given them the full picture of who he was in order that they might share and demonstrate that to the rest of the world. Now the problem that they had was the problem of memory. Faced by difficult circumstances, they lost sight of who God was. And so do we. The key for God's people, both Old Covenant, Israel, New Covenant Christians, the key is to remember. It's a very key word in the Bible. To remember means not just to recall some facts, like for a general knowledge quiz or passing an exam. It means to recall certain facts which then have a bearing on how we live here and now. So in response to the complaints of the people of Israel, their doubts as to whether God sees or cares, notice, what, look what Isaiah says. He says, why do you say, O Israel, or Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God. So what he says, don't you know? In other words, you should know. Haven't you heard? Of course you've heard. Haven't you heard? Don't you know who God is? Look what he says. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He'll not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. And in these verses, he reminds them in these particular circumstances of two key facts about who God is. All right, look at them carefully. It's fairly straightforward, really. First of all, he says, remember that God is the eternal God. Literally, in the original, it says, he is the God of eternity. He's not, therefore, limited by time. He's unchanging. He's involved in history, but not limited or affected by what is the passage of time. And secondly, he is the creator God, the one who created all things. If you look earlier back in Isaiah chapter 40, you'll see these wonderful verses, poetic verses that describe who God is. Verse 12, he says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? 
or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who's held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Verse 17, before him all the nations were as nothing. They're regarded as worthless, less than nothing. God is the eternal God. He's the creator of God. And because the people of Israel have forgotten, failed to bring that to bear on their circumstances, they've got a warped view of what is happening and they've begun to doubt that God sees and God cares. And that is what we need to do. We need to bring these things to mind when faced by difficult circumstances in our own lives or things in the world that we don't comprehend. And there's a logic that follows from this. So, if, if God is the God of eternity, the eternal God, if he is the creator God, then he will never give up on his plans. He'll not be limited because, gosh, here's a plan that he can't carry out. He doesn't have the resources to do it. Or he won't have to postpone them because he's a bit tired and weary. You know, God has been very busy at the, in history and he really needs to take a break now. Everybody needs a break. You know, God isn't like that. He doesn't grow tired or weary. No, he says, because God is the God of eternity, because he's the creator God, his divine timetable is still in place. But, second implication, because we are finite human beings, his understanding no one can fathom. God will never give up on his plans. But we will never fully comprehend his plans. It follows logically. If God is God, like some, you imagine, for example, watching a great chess player. Unless you're at that level, which none of us are, the world's greatest chess player, you will never understand what he's doing, what moves he's making. Now, in an in a infinitely more greater way, God's plans are way beyond our comprehension. We will never fully comprehend them. In one of the best commentaries on Isaiah, if you want a good commentary on Isaiah, read Alec Matthias' commentary, modern commentary. He writes, His ways, God's ways, belong to eternity, we to time. His vision is for the world, we are local. His ceaselessness keeps him always ahead of the point we've reached. Now, because this is the case, because God is so great, we might be tempted to think, well, gosh, if God holds the islands and the nations like a drop in a bucket, what possible significance can I have? We might be tempted to despair or fatalism. But another writer, Derek Kidner, puts it very well. He says the wrong inference from God's transcendence is that he's too great to care. The right is that he's too great to fail. How do we know then that God cares? Well, here's the remarkable thing. Look what he says. The Lord, again, verse 28, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He'll not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Now, if he stopped at that point, you'd say, well, does God really care? But notice what he says. He says, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. How does God show that he's interested in us? By giving us strength and power. God, the God of power, shares his strength with his people and those who wait upon him. The word weary refers to failure under life's pressures. The word weak to those who lack innate strength. And rather than God being tired of me, God meets my tiredness, my weakness, with his strength and his power. And this is what God offers, but we have to prove it and apply it in experience. 
Otherwise, it's just a theology lesson and you nod your head and say, yeah, that's good, I agree with that. How do you prove it? You prove it in experience. Secondly, by receiving what God offers. What is our greatest need when we're faced by difficult circumstances or living through turbulent times? Surely it is strength to endure, power to persevere and keep going. And the strength and power that God offers are far beyond what is humanly possible. Supernatural strength. Look what he says in verse 30. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. The word youths refers to very fit young men. I'm going to look for an example in the congregation but I'll not embarrass anybody. Young men, the word young there, probably should be chosen men. Those who are selected like Olympic candidates or top fighting men. And he says, even the best of these in human terms eventually get exhausted and begin to stagger around because they've got no strength to keep going. But he says, those who hope in or wait on the Lord, with them the process is reversed. Their strength, rather than being diminished, is renewed so that they're enabled to keep going and not give up. Now, clearly this does not refer to physical strength or prowess or the British Olympic team would be full of Christians rather than just Jonathan Edwards. No, it's referring to strength and power that is of a different nature and quality to physical strength. It refers to supernatural strength, to spiritual stamina, to persevering faith in the Lord that enables us to keep going no matter what the circumstances are. You know, one of the greatest proofs to me that God loves and cares as a pastor is engaging with Christian brothers and sisters in this congregation who are going through some of them the most horrific circumstances, the most sorrowful events, the most traumatic things, and seeing that somehow they manage to keep going and hold on and that their faith in God does not fail. And you think, how is that humanly possible? The world looks on and says, if that happened to me, I'd give up. It's because in those times of weakness that we prove these verses and we prove God's strength. Again, Motir comments, the natural person is not like God, but the believer is. As the unwearying and fainting strength of the divine enters him, he finds inner resources that do not fail before life's demands. And he uses here three active verbs to describe this process. He says they saw, they run, and they walk. Did you see the three things come together? They will soar on wings like eagles. When you wait on God, when you come to God in your need, when you come to God in crisis, there are times as you reflect upon him that you're lifted up, sometimes you're lifted up above the circumstances and you gain an eagle's eye view and you see, maybe not fully, you see a different perspective on your circumstances than you'd ever seen before. That's one of the reasons we've already said why we come together and meet like this, to hear God's word and to get a different bird's eye view on what's happening to you. Now, there's an old hymn, some of the older ones remember, that describes this kind of experience when we spend time in prayer. It says, There, there, on eagle wing we saw, and time and sense 
seem all no more, and heaven comes down our souls to greet, and glory crowns the mercy seat. Now, if you're a Christian, and you've been a Christian for any length of time, I'm sure you can look back on experiences like that. When in prayer, it's, it's hard to describe this, isn't it, if, if, if you've never experienced it, but there are times when you pray and you're facing some great crisis and difficulty, and it's as though God lifts you up, and as you spend time in his presence and his word and focusing on who he is, you come away and you feel you, almost you're above it and you can look down upon it and see things from a different perspective and the, you go away from it and your circumstances are exactly the same as they were when you started but your perspective is totally different. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry, but I hope some of you are nodding your heads and saying, I, I know what he's talking about. Soaring, however, is not an everyday experience. More often we have to travel at ground level. And there are times when we need those spurts of energy to keep us going. So he says they will run and not grow weary. To run with perseverance, a particular race marked out for us, the New Testament puts it in Hebrews 12 verse 1. I have um, a program at the gym. This is just to let you know I'm still going. Um, And uh, one of the programs is 12 minutes on the treadmill. And... uh, during this 12 minutes, there are certain points in the program, which I now know when they're coming, when the program and the treadmill speeds up and I have to start running to keep up with the treadmill. Fortunately, it's only about, it's sort of about two, three two-minute blocks within the 12-minute program. For the rest of the time, I just have to keep walking, otherwise I fall off. And it's true, in our lives as Christians, there are times when we need to run, when the crises are great and we need special energy We need God's power to get us through those points. But for the most time, in our lives, we walk and not faint. Sawers and runners may be dismissive of of, as mere walkers. But most of us spend more time walking than running and certainly than soaring. And so it is in the spiritual realm, as Apostle Paul says, we walk by faith. So, soar, run, walk. Is there any significance in the order? Surely the cynic says, saw, run, walk, grind to a halt. Surely we'd expect them in reverse order, would we not? You know, you start walking, and then you're running, and then finally you flap your wings and you take off. But I think the order is right. But what he's talking about here is persevering faith. You see, the prophet Isaiah is speaking to a particular situation here, On the border is this mighty superpower of Syria. However, if you read in chapter 39, what he says to the people is, that's nothing. Generations down the line, another superpower called Babylon is going to come on the horizon and it's going to carry you all off into captivity. That's like another 150 years. And so what are you saying to these people now? You're saying, you've got to live and just keep going at the present time. Maybe sometimes you soar and get a glimpse of what's happening, of God's future. And other times you run as you face particular crises, but for the most part we walk. One commentary describes it as the continuing, persistent plodding that is necessary for living for God. Let me repeat that, because it doesn't sound very glamorous, but it's true. The consistent, continuing, persistent plodding that is necessary for living for God. So the conclusion, there is no cause for complaint. 
The words of Isaiah, the word of the Lord, shows the people of Israel have no cause for complaint. But what about us 2,700 years on? As we look at our lives and the world's events, do we have cause for complaint? Do we not wonder about the divine timetable? When our circumstances have remained unchanged, when some of us have seen people predict events in the world as you turn the newspaper and look at the latest Middle Eastern events and they say, oh, well, this is in the Bible, it's all going to happen next week, next month, within this generation. And yet things are still unchanged. Do we sometimes think, has God's plan failed? Do we have any cause for complaint? Surely the answer is we have far less cause for complaint than the people of Israel did. Down the centuries, the word of the Lord to us is, do you not know? Have you not heard? We have far greater evidence of God's powerful plan than the people of Israel in Isaiah's day ever knew. What do we know and have heard? We've seen God's plan of history come to fulfillment, foretold by prophets like Isaiah in the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. We've seen the greatest demonstration that God loves and cares in the death of Jesus the Saviour on the cross. We've seen the greatest demonstration of God's power in raising him from the dead, the resurrection of Jesus the Lord. And so we are convinced, despite what may happen to us in our world, that God's plan is still in place and will be finally completed in the return of Jesus the King. And so we hope in the Lord. We wait on the Lord we wait for the Lord. And as we do so, we prove his strength to keep going. We experience his strength. And that strength is most proved in our weakest times. Are the times when we think we're powerful and life is we're under control and everything's fine. We often fall into self-reliance. But it's a time when we face circumstances that we wish we'd go away and we say to the Lord, please take this away. And he says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Oh yes, sometimes we saw. Sometimes we run. But we never give up. But continue to walk by faith until Christ comes or calls. Let's pray together.